John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you bride of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham's as our fathers. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and do not accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many words, with, and with many other words, John extorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. You can be seated. Whenever I used to read about John the Baptist, um, his teachings who he was as a person, both in the Bible, sources outside of the Bible, because there are sources outside of the Bible that speak about this man. Um, I'm often struck by like how harsh and straightforward he is um, and whether or not he was a healthy guy um, in his own spirit. He really, if, if you're reading John the Baptist and you think, that really made me feel good, um, you might want to read it again. Uh, he's, he's a bit of a character. And so when I used to read his teachings and about him, again, both in and outside the Bible, I often wondered uh, how out of sync he must have been uh, in his own day and within a thinking and civilized society in which he lived. Um, these people are not unevolved. These people were smart. These people... Uh, we're intellectuals, the same as we have today. And here's this person who's living in the wilderness around the Jordan, and he's just yelling things and, and castigating people. And it's very interesting and compelling. And yet, somehow, he's got a lot of followers. He's got a lot of people that cut. So I don't know if he's this guy, you know, he's sort of this way in his teaching style. But if you get a beer with him, he's fantastic. You know, that guy, like, you bring, a, you bring a friend to John the Baptist's, you know, religious service, and he's like, this guy's a little weird, but it's like, but he's really funny, you know, once you get to know him. Uh, I don't know what the situation was. But, uh, but again, I, you know, seriously, I do think, like, how out of sync he must have been and how out of sync he might be today if he was in our midst today saying these sorts of things about being sons of snakes and I brought an axe, and it's all sorts of strange things. It must be weird. And then I thought about Twitter. 
Now, social media in general is fun. It's what it should be for, in my opinion, just memes and funny. Um, and the occasional update here and there, but it's fun. It's generally a good and healthy thing. It's where we learn about your friends, your families, uh, the food you eat, the, the stack of books you're into right now, um, what your Enneagram number is. Um, what, what number are you if you have to post something about your number every day? What number, what number is that? You don't want to say. Yeah. Um, people say I'm an eight. I don't really know what it means. Um, I got looped into an Enneagram breakfast once, and it was, it was interesting. Like, is, this, is this astrology? Like, what are we doing? Where's Elijah? Up here on the drums. Um, no, it's good for that stuff. It's good to share, to post. Uh, it's generally fun and uh, interesting, and, and it can be uplifting and positive. There's also these like darker corners of the internet, of the social medias, where there's argument going on, there's confrontation, there's um, condemning, there's rebuke, where all the canceling is happening. There's that corner of the social media market, and it's in that corner that I think that John the Baptist may have been right at home. He may have just had a place there. He would, just, he would have been a legendary Twitter curmudgeon. Um, now, I was going to search for a John the Baptist Twitter, but I really just don't care, so I just made one. I just made one. So this is, this is John the Baptist's Twitter. It's his latest post, if we can put this. Hashtags. I don't know if you can read those from there. But he, he, he did reference us there at the end. ACC Advent, so he's a, he's a fan. Yeah. We're huge around the Jordan area. Do you like this? Yeah. I, I was working on this, and I turned around and showed Mickey, and she was like, that looks like a legit tweet. So he's got a blue check mark, too. I like that. If you want to follow him, it's at your wilderness nightmare. So... Okay, we're done with that. So what is it that has John all torqued up? What is he upset about? He is upset. He's crying out in very definitive tones. And what is it that is underneath his skin? And what do we do with what John is saying Two Sundays of Advent, the middle two, are always devoted to this man. And it's an odd insertion into a season that takes us to what we know to be the more familiar and peaceful scene of the birth of Jesus. But why why do we sit with this person for two weeks? And what is it that he's so impassioned about? Well, there's a couple of things to note in the story, in the passage for today, Um, I want to start with the end and sort of back up into what he's calling the people to do then and us as well. But the thing that John is concerned about are these uh, systems and structures of injustice that are happening within society, Israel involved as well, and people seemingly aren't paying attention to it. 
You know how you just get used to things. And there's a sense that they've lost their sense of touch with these systems of injustices. Now, he's railing on and on, and then the people are convicted. I feel like we're not hearing the whole story, but they do come to him and say, so what do we do with what you just said? And you would think that he would say, die. You need to die. That's how Twitter works, right? Zero to homicide, as Bill Maher says. But he doesn't. It's almost like a humorous shift. He's like angry and angry and angry and impassioned. And they say, well, what do we do? And he's like, oh, I didn't think you'd ask. Um, if you have a couple coats, give one away. Uh, don't take more than is your share and your jobs. Uh, and you soldiers out there, be kind to people. Don't shake them down for money. This is what he says to them. It seems so like, wait, all that passion, and that's what you're telling me? Just to be a nice, be a neighbor, be nice? But we, what we must understand as people living in 2021, he's addressing very real systemic issues of injustice. These are prevalent in the day. It's how tax collectors worked. It's how the wealthy lived their lives. It's how the military roamed the streets. People lived in fear. People lived in shame. People lived thinking that they weren't enough. People lived in need. Most of the ancient society in this part of the world was at the poverty level or worse. And so when they ask him what they should do, he goes directly to the thing that is underneath their eyes, but they don't. They've lost sight of it. They don't see it. They don't hear it. They don't smell it anymore, which is normal for us. We get used to the way that we live, and we forget that other people don't live like us. And that's how it works with money or no money. Rich is just anybody who has more than you, and poor is anybody who has less than you, and that's a sliding scale. And it's easy to sort of assume that everyone is like us. And so John points out these systems in which they are living that are causing all sorts of problems and pain, and they are structures of injustice. So why does he care? Well, there is a sense of human dignity that belongs in the story of God, that all of us have been made in his image. And when human dignity begins to be deteriorated by society, by people, by both uh, the worlds that we live in and the people that we know, when we feel and see the dignity of humanity being torn apart, it bothers John. It bothers him. It bothers God. That when he sees you, when he sees me, we are made in his image. You are his children. And when there's an assault on your dignity, when you are made to feel less than you truly are, it bothers God. Amen? And so it's not just that he's saying, oh, share a coat, don't shake people down. For I mean, he's talking about ways in which the world operates when it loses sight of people's dignity. When people can just be rolled over by society. So he's pointing that out. If we want to take it down to a more simple, understandable chunk, it's simply the love your neighbor as yourself, that we see the other as our neighbor, whether they are truly our neighbor, truly our friend, or truly our enemy. We are to see all people as neighbors. And so for John's audience, he really senses that they've lost that. And he's angry about it. 
Why wouldn't he be? Why wouldn't he say these things? And when they come to him and say, fine, what do we do? He just gives them a very simple yet profound and difficult task to actually do. It's simple on the surface, but to really do these things, to really change the way that we live in order to restore the dignity of people, to treat people as equals, to love our neighbors, not easily done. It's easily said. It's not easily done. But he's also the forerunner of Jesus. He knows in his heart that he is announcing the coming Messiah. And so in a way as well, what John is doing is saying, the thing I'm telling you to do is the thing you're going to see in the coming Christ. Now, he knows that in his heart. I was telling some people on the porch this morning that what's very interesting about John is that although he sees himself as the the herald of the coming Christ, and he points at Jesus and says, that's the guy. Don't follow me anymore. Follow him. There is a point in John's life where he's not quite sure if Jesus is really the one because Jesus doesn't do ministry like John does. Jesus doesn't have a Twitter account. Jesus isn't railing against people like John does. And so when John is in prison, he sends word to Jesus simply saying, hey, are you the one we should be expecting or should we look for somebody else? Because he doesn't seem to be living up to the same standard that John had for people. Jesus comes in lower with grace and mercy and love. And he challenges from that realm instead of where John is coming from. But John does have enough foresight to know that the very things he was telling the people to do, they're going to see in the Messiah. And one of the things we know from all the great ancient, modern theologians and everybody in between is that what we see in Jesus is not just a way to God, but we see also a way to be human. That Jesus is an example, the example of what it means to be human. And so John is pointing forward and saying, What you're going to see in the Messiah is this. What he will be about will be these things. You will see this. You will be challenged in this way. John is saying, this is what is coming. And so be prepared for that. Stay awake for that. Don't miss it. If we back up in the text, he uses these words, bear the fruit of repentance. Isn't repentance a great word? No, it's not. Uh, You're like, please don't talk about repentance. I'm gonna. Um, It's probably not what you think. It's this beautiful, uh, the Greek word is metanoia. And it ultimately means changing the way that you think, the way that you see the world around you. It's putting on new lenses through which you see the world. To repent is in part to change your mind about things. We're always repenting. We're always evolving and growing and changing. So it's it's not a thing that you do once so you're saved. It's a way of life to always ask God to be the center of our thoughts, to fix our vision on the things that he wants us to see. That's a life of repentance. In the Hebrew, the word is teshuva. It has both a intellectual component to change your mind, but it has this uh, embodied component too, that it affects the way that I interact with the world physically. It's not just, I think differently now. That's a very Greek mindset, but when we back up into the Hebrew definition of the word, it's an embodied thing too. 
And this makes sense in light of what John is saying. It's not just, I want you to think differently about the systems in which you live, but I want you to embody the change that you want to see. I want you to actually do something. I want you to take your life and actually leverage it in ways that are good and healthy and that restore the dignity of people. And so when John says, bear the fruits of repentance, that's what that means. Take the thing that you're changing in your mind and let that be embodied. So repentance is not a thing to be afraid of. It is a thing to enter and to let it be a part of who you are all the days of your life. This is what he means by the axes at the foot of the tree, which sounds so scary. But he's just saying, I'm here to chop the old things down so that the new things can grow. The axe is an image of renewal, not judgment. It's a symbol of something new to come. Amen? This is what John is imploring his listeners to, that this is the thing that is coming. And I want you to be prepared for that. It involves a posture of repentance, of not just tinkering with the intellectual part of my faith and the way I view the world, but allowing it to be embodied. Today is the third Sunday of the Advent season, and Advent is marked as a season by things like uh, anticipation, preparation. We We are all preparing for Christmas in some way, Um, which I think anymore just involves like a really strategic session on Amazon um, and just to knock that out. But But whatever, we're all preparing for that. But in terms of the biblical story and the Christian faith, the church sits in this season as a way of being reminded that, oh yeah, Christ is coming, Christ has come, And he continually comes to me in all sorts of ways. And I must continually prepare a place for him in my life. That I must be a place of residence for the presence of God in me. So that when I'm in the world, that there's, it's leaking, it's finding its way into um, conversations and ways that I encourage and ways that I help, ways that I embody His grace and mercy. Advent is about making room for that. It is about making room in our minds and hearts and in our strength so that Christ may live in us and through us, that we might be an animated presence of God in the world. He says, well, you can make room in your life for God to work through you in all of these ways. I love what Flannery O'Connor says, She says, for me, it is the virgin birth, the incarnation, the resurrection, which are the true laws of the flesh and the physical. Death, decay, destruction, those are the suspension of those laws. I'm always astonished at the emphasis the church puts on the body. It's not the soul, she says, will rise, but the body, glorified that it's good to be human and that you and I have these bodies in which our mind works to animate us in our everyday worlds 
And John is simply inviting us to think about how it is that God is living through us in the places of greatest need and in the places of unseen needs where we might just be a good presence for someone and everything in between. And so I want to leave you with that today as we begin to close out this third week or really begin this third week of the Advent season that you think on these things in the coming day. Keep your lamp trimmed and burning. Keep your lamp trimmed and burning. Keep your lamp trimmed and burning. See what the Lord has done. Sister Dow, get worried. Sister Dow, get worried. Sister Dow, get worried. For the work is almost done. Brother Dog, get worried. Brother Dog, get worried. Brother Dog, 